Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's nice to be back and good to see all your bright, shining faces again. I bring you greetings from uh, about 100 people last week in Lexington, Kentucky. We had an all-day session up there. It was really a very enjoyable session. I don't have any idea how many different churches, church groups were represented there, but people came from all over up there, and it was really a, a wonderful day overall. And many people commented to say hello to people down here, so hello uh, from all the, the gang up in Lexington. Why do I observe the seventh-day Sabbath day? You know, on the radio program often I have made reference to the Sabbath day, and if a person listens very long, they're going to be aware of the fact that, that I am a Sabbatarian. Now, they don't know anything about you folks and your beliefs because they're listening to me as a, as a radio personality. It's not a long story, and it's a fairly straightforward story, and I'm approaching it today as to why do I keep the Sabbath day as almost a, a personal testimony in the hope that out of my own belief system and out of my own uh, feelings about this important day, you might come to learn and maybe come to share my feelings about it. Most people who claim to be religious, be they Jewish, Christian, or what have you, believe in keeping the Ten Commandments. That is a given. The fourth commandment is the one commandment that, call, that, that is called into question consistently. Because even the, the people who believe that the Ten Commandments were done away believe that nine of the commandments were reinstated in the New Testament, and they have some convoluted uh, uh, discussion or argument about how that actually works. Well, if you're going to start with this question, you have to start really with the Ten Commandments because that's where the Sabbath day is outlined in clarity. In Exodus chapter 20... And in verse 8, many of you know it so well, you probably don't even have to turn to it. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, your cattle, or your stranger that is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now, there's one thing I want to explain before I go any further with this, and that's the word holy and the expression hallowed. To hallow something is, uh, is the verb form. Holy is the noun form. They both deal with the same concept. It is, and it is also related to the word to sanctify, as you find sometimes in the New Testament. What the words mean is to set apart or something that is set apart. I've used the analogy you could take six or seven of these chairs that we have here, all of which are absolutely identical, and line them up. Then take one of them and set it apart from the other. And in the secular sense, you have made that chair holy. You have sanctified it. You have set it apart from the others. That is the core meaning of the word sanctify, to hallow, or of something that is holy. The distinction, though, is in the Bible that whenever you do set something apart from others of like kind, you set it apart for God, so that there is a, a spiritual significance to sanctifying, to making, to hallowing things. So the very idea of the Sabbath day is that it is a day apart. Otherwise, there is absolutely no more difference, less difference, I suppose, between the Sabbath day and any other day than there might be between these chairs because these chairs may have flaws or little things that are different about one or the other of them. But the, you get the point that the, that the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week, is no different from any other day of the week except for one thing. It was blessed by God 
and it was set apart from the other days of the week by God. Now, this is a fairly important concept when you think about it. Now, the question then is, when precisely did this event take place? Did God sanctify the Sabbath day, that is, set it apart from the other days, at Mount Sinai, when Moses was on the mountaintop, and he gave him the Ten Commandments, and he wrote that fourth one in stone with his own finger? You know, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Is that when God blessed the seventh day and set it apart from all the other days? Now, we all know also that Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is an institution that man needed. Now, when was the Sabbath made then? Was it made after the Exodus, whenever Israel was on their way up to Mount Sinai? Was it made when God wrote the fourth commandment in stone on Mount Sinai? Well, no, it wasn't, in fact. And I think many of you are probably already ahead of me. The place you turn at this point is the second chapter of the book of Genesis. You all know the story of the first chapter, how that God day by day developed and began the creation of the world, how that the light was created and the animals were created and the fish that swim in the sea were created, the birds that swim in the sky. Every time, though, it turns around and says, and the evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. And he works his way right through the seven days of creation. Okay? Then he comes to Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and set it apart from all the other days. He sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all the work which he had made. How hard is this? When did God bless the seventh day? and set it apart from all the other days, days which, as far as any observer would say, are just like all the rest of them. The sun comes up, the sun goes down, it goes around its place and comes up again. One day is like any other day, except for the fact that God blessed it and set it apart, and he did it on the seventh day of creation, the day after the creation of man. Now, this is really, really very interesting and really, I think, very simple to understand. I am familiar with the argument that says there is not a single reference prior to Moses of any man actually observing the Sabbath day. You probably have heard that somewhere along the line. If you haven't, you've heard it now. Now, the argument is true, but absolutely irrelevant. Totally irrelevant. God observed this day, which is rather more important than man observing it, as a matter of fact. But I want to add a new word to your vocabulary. The word is sophistry. S-O-P-H. R-I-S-T-R-Y. And here's what it means. It is a subtle, tricky, superficially plausible, but generally fallacious method of reasoning. It is a false argument. The argument that the Sabbath was not observed by any man from, Mo from, from, from Adam to Moses is a sophistry. It is nothing more than an excuse that people go to to try to deal with the Sabbath day when they're, they're not willing to observe it and when they feel it's not a part of their way of doing things. See, the problem is this, that most of the arguments that have to do with why you should not observe the Sabbath day is that it is strictly a Jewish institution, that it came into existence at Mount Sinai, it was for Israel, it was assigned to Israel, it wasn't assigned to anybody else. And that, therefore, when Christ came along and his gospel went to the Gentiles, the Sabbath did not go with it. The Sabbath was an Israelite institution. Now, for that to be true, then the Sabbath had to come into existence with Moses. The problem with it is it didn't. 
The Sabbath came into existence at creation. For from the seventh day of creation, God blessed it and set it apart from the other days as the day he rested. Now, God wasn't tired. The reason he did what he did was an example for man to follow down through all of his generations. And so we do it to this day. It's interesting that another scripture says that God rested and was refreshed. It was like, you know, I've done my work. Now I'm going to sit back and enjoy it. I'm going to sit back and look at it. I'm not going to work today. And that God himself was refreshed, uplifted, inspired by the, by the results of his own work. And candidly, those of us who have in our lifetime built something, have put something together, have created something out of nothing, know precisely what that feels like. To take a little time to appreciate your own work is a real blessing. Now, the reason why this is a sophistry, I will explain that. The book of Genesis is not a book of laws. And the Sabbath, it's, it's a book of history. And the Sabbath played no special role in that history. References to the law in Genesis are incidental. Now, what I mean by that is they come about only because of some incident that took place. There is a reference to the fact, obviously, that adultery is a sin only because of the temptation that was put upon a man to commit adultery when he then turns around and calls it a sin. If it hadn't have been for that incident, you might not have found any reference in the book of Genesis to adultery being a sin. The fact that a man was tempted to lie or actually did lie and the results of it created problems, or else then, then we come back around on that incident that lying was considered a sin by men prior to Moses, all through the book of Genesis. So the incidents of different things during the book of Genesis illustrate each and every one of the Ten Commandments were in existence. And in fact, it is an incident that gives the Sabbath to us. What was that incident? It was the completion of creation. Where God says, he's all finished, the incident is, I've done the job, and the incident is God then rests from it, sets it apart, sanctifies it, hallows it, and says, this is the Sabbath day. So the Sabbath then came into existence immediately, the day following man coming into existence, because it was for man. This much is easy to understand from the pages of the scripture. Now, one of the most interesting passages, though, relative to the Sabbath, is found in Exodus 16. And actually... It's well before the Ten Commandments were given on Mount Sinai. We're going to study this chapter just a little bit this afternoon to try to glean from it what we might about the Sabbath day. And again, this, this chapter was important to me in coming to understand the Sabbath so that you can understand, as I said, this is why I keep the Sabbath day. It is a personal testimony. Now, all the congregation of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the instructions of God, and pitched in Rephidim. There wasn't any water there. That's the hard part. So the people chided Moses and said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm in chapter 17, not 16. I flipped the wrong page over. Back to chapter 16, verse 1. They took their journey from Elam, and all the congregation of Israel came to the wilderness of sin between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after the departing out of the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and they said, Would to God we had died. Oh, you know, you really have to feel sorry for these poor people. I wish I was dead. You know, wish we had died in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots, when we ate bread to the full. Now, you know, I have an awful hard time with this. These people were slaves. They were slaves. Their war life was hard. They worked from the time they could see in the morning until the time they went to bed at night. And the Egyptians didn't give them any more to eat than they absolutely had to give them. But still, it's better, I guess, than not having anything. And they wanted to go back. 
He said, we sat by the flesh plots, and we had all the bread in the world to eat. And you brought us out in this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Pitiful people. And then said the Lord to Moses, okay, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people will go out and gather a certain rate every day. What I want to find out is whether these people will obey my voice or not. Will they walk in my law or will they not? We're going to find out right now. It shall come to pass on the sixth day they shall prepare that which they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather every day. So Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, Tonight you're going to know that it's God that's brought you out of Egypt. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he has heard your murmurings against him. Who are we that you should murmur against us? Moses said, This shall be when the Lord shall give you in the evening flesh to eat, quail, and in the morning bread to the full, for the Lord has heard your murmurings which you murmur against him. For what are we? Moses is really anxious to get this point across. You know, we're not anything. The people, the one you had trouble with here, folks, is God. God sent me down to Egypt to bring you out of there. You wouldn't have got this far if he hadn't have been with you. So let's get this, let's get the record straight. So he said, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your murmurings. Came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. What a sight that must have been. And the Lord spoke to Moses. He spoke up and said, I've heard it. I've heard all this murmuring. I've heard all this muttering. You speak to them, saying, This evening you're going to eat flesh. In the morning you'll be filled with bread, and you're going to know that I am Jehovah your God. Well, it came to pass that evening. The quails came up and covered the camp. In the morning the dew lay round about the host. And when the dew that lay was gone up, look, on the face of the wilderness there was a small round thing, as small as hoarfrost upon the ground. And they looked at it and they said, what's that? It's manna. What that meant, the word manna means, what's that? And so they said to one another, they didn't know what it was, and Moses said, that's the bread. You gather this stuff up, you're going to make bread out of this. This is what God has commanded. Here's how you're going to do this. Gather every man according to his eating, and omer for every man according to the number of your persons. Take you every man for them which are in his tents. Go out and get enough of it for your family. So they did. They gathered some more, some less. And when they measured it all out, he that gathered much had little, nothing over. He that gathered little had no luck and lack. In other words, there was enough of it there to just meet everybody's needs. That's all they got. And Moses said, now, here are your instructions. Don't leave any of it till morning. Well, you know how people are, don't you? Somebody had to leave some of it until the morning. He said, well, I, I may be hungry in the morning. I don't necessarily want it all right now. I'll just save this aside, and then I'll have something to eat in the morning. Other people won't. So guess what? Next morning, it had bred worms, all wormy, and it stunk up the whole joint. And I gather it probably it was pretty bad. It wasn't something that stink just stayed inside your tent, and nobody else knew that it was stinking all that bad. It must have smelled up the whole neighborhood. Moses was really upset with these people. Now, something is beginning to happen here. Why is this important? Well, it's important because a God is in the process of, through method of the simple method of discipline, teaching Israel a very simple concept. Not merely that they should take one day and seven and rest, but that they should all take the same day and seven to rest, and it had to be the day that God chose, not the day that they chose. 
Now, this little passage of Scripture is pretty tough to deal with, because in my lifetime I've heard many arguments about Sabbath day. I've heard a lot of people say it doesn't matter which day you observe, as long as it's one day in seven. And so we can slide the Sabbath one day later, and we can keep Sunday as a Sabbath, which generations of people did in this country. The fact of the matter is that many Protestants, and I suppose some Catholics, actually wouldn't work on Sunday. It was a day of rest. It was the Sabbath day. I've heard deacons in church pray, and the Lord bless us on this year Sabbath day on Sunday morning. And many of them would not plow their fields. They wouldn't do housework. They, they actually treated Sunday as though it were the Sabbath. So when they came into the, the, the awareness of the seventh-day Sabbath, the natural thing is, well, I'm keeping the Sabbath. I'm just, it just doesn't matter which day you keep it. It's just one day in seven. Now, here's where, in my own experience, I came up against it on that question. It was in Leviticus 16. It came to pass, it says in verse 23, 22, On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for one man, and the rulers came and told Moses. Now, they were a little bit concerned initially, because on the sixth day, a lot of people were out there gathering double the amount they had been getting every other day, and they looked at this, oh, oh boy, can you imagine what this camp is going to smell like tomorrow? Well, they came and told Moses about it. Moses said, no, this is what God said. Tomorrow is the rest of the holy, the word holy means what? Set apart. It is the day that God set apart. It is the holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, cook what you will cook, and whatever you have left over, you can keep it till morning. So they did, and it didn't breed, breed worms, and it didn't stink. Everything was fine. And Moses said, You eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not find it in the field. Six days shall you gather it. On the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, in it there shall be none. Now, as I said, in my own studies, this became very important because it resolved a question that I had had. And that is, can you observe the Sabbath just whenever you feel like it? You say, well, I'm going to make Wednesday the Sabbath in my life. Now, I'm going to tell you what I think is wrong with that. There was a book, if I recall the book correctly, and I may, be, I may have mixed up two books that I read when I was a young fellow, but it seems that the book was God's Little Acre. And God's Little Acre was about a man who had dedicated one acre of his property out here to that, that every year whatever grew on that acre, that particular acre he was going to give to God, give to the church. See, that was God's Little Acre over here. And the rest of the property, he would keep whatever grew on the rest of it for himself. So the first year, that corner acre he'd given over there to God, produced more than, mo than nearly the rest of his land all put together, something along this line. It was the, the, by far and away the most productive acre on his property. So guess what he did the next day, year? He moved God's little acre to one of the less productive places, and he was going to take this one for himself. Well, that year, this acre began to produce more. And the other one, I guess, went back to the others. And he kept moving this little acre around you know, every year by year trying to get, you know, the, the best yielding stuff for himself, but still wanting something to go to God. And everywhere he moved it, God made that one, that particular acre prosper. One, day, one year he finally decided that what he was going to do, he was going to make God's little acre the one that his house was sitting on. And they discovered oil on that one acre of property that year. Now, the moral of the story, of course, is, is, is that once you have the freedom to move it around, you'll move it around to suit yourself, and you will never have any consistency. In fact, you will have no Sabbath at all. If you have the right to decide when it is, you have no Sabbath. The truth is, God didn't leave Israel to decide when it was. He very explicitly, very pointedly told them 
when it was going to be. Now, if you'll turn back to Isaiah 56, the Sabbath figures very prominently in some prophecies, and these, were, these figured very large in my mind because they, they answered questions that I and other people had about these things. This is Isaiah chapter 56. Now, you have probably heard the expression, the Jewish Sabbath, right? And the argument that, well, the Jews are for the, for, you know, the, the Sabbath is for the Jews, or the Sabbath is for the Israelites, and it's not for any of the rest of us. Okay, here's Isaiah in chapter 56. Thus saith the Lord, Keep you judgment and do justice, for my salvation is near to come, and my righteousness is to be revealed. Blessed is the man that does this. Blessed is the man that lays hold on it, that keeps the Sabbath from polluting it. Now, this is what God says to man. He said, Blessed is the man who looks at this and gets hold of it and keeps the Sabbath from polluting it. Okay, I got that. And he keeps his hand from doing any evil. Neither let the son of the stranger that has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, Well, God has utterly separated me from his people. I'm just not one of these. I don't have to do this. I mean, I'm not in this category. He said, uh, I'm, I'm, and he's, oh, he goes on to say, Neither let the eunuch say, Look, I'm just a dry tree. None of this pertains to me. Thus saith the Lord to the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths and choose the things that please me and take hold of my covenant. This is interesting. God's covenant is something there that can actually be reached out and taken hold of. Even to them will I give in my house and my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also, the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord. Who are these folks? They're not Israelites. They're not Jews. They're Gentiles. They have decided to join themselves to Jehovah to serve him and love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone that keeps the Sabbath from polluting it and takes hold of my covenant. Hey, so even the Gentiles could take hold of God's covenant. They could take hold of the Sabbath and look at the blessings that come their way for having done so. Now, I can immediately hear the argument, well, that's old covenant, that's fine, that's true, and so forth. But everybody needs to suddenly wise up about one thing. In the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament, the Gentiles were not stiff-armed by God. They weren't pushed away by God. They weren't treated as second-class citizens by God. The Israelites treated them as second-class citizens. The Jews treated them as second-class citizens. But God's law never did. God opened the door for Gentiles to lay hold of the Sabbath, to lay hold of the covenant, and to worship him in it. It was not a Jewish Sabbath. It was God's Sabbath, which all men were welcome to come and partake of and be involved in. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain. I'll make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be acceptable upon my altar. Whose? The sons of the stranger could actually come into the house of God, could offer sacrifices upon his altar. Now, that's startling to think about. In fact, many commentators are looking back at this talk about how, how far ahead of his time Isaiah was in seeing the conversion of the Gentiles, the complete access of the Gentiles to God. But the fact is, that wasn't ahead of the time. That was the time. That was what God expected from the very beginning of Israel, not the cutting off or the pushing away of Gentiles. He says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all 
people. God never intended to just be the God of the Israelites. He never intended to be just be the God of the Jews. He intended to be the God of all people. He intended his house to be a house of prayer for all people. And he intended his worship, the offering of sacrifice, the keeping of the Sabbath, to be something that was for all people. And so when Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, he's talking about all man, not Israelites or anything else. This whole argument about it being a Jewish institution Again, is a sophistry. It's based upon an, on a very poor understanding of the purpose of God, the direction in which God is going, what God is trying to accomplish with man, and how God intends to save the world, how he intends to reach out to all men at one time or another in his great, great plan. Turn back a couple of pages to Isaiah chapter 58. This is a familiar passage in its beginning. Cry aloud, spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. You know, these people seek me daily. They delight to know my ways as though they were a nation that did righteousness, as though they weren't a nation that just forsook the ordinances of their God. They ask for me ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. You know, this is, this is sarcasm. This is irony, folks, that you're reading here. Because the truth is, at this time in their history, Israel didn't do these things. They made a pretense of it. And he says, they come up here as though they were a people that really wanted to know. The truth is, they don't. Wherefore, they say, have we fasted and you don't see? How is it that we have afflicted our soul and you take no knowledge? God answers, behold, in the day of your fast you find pleasure and you exact all of your labors. In other words, you say, we're going to declare a fast day and you don't eat. But look what you do. You just go right ahead and live your life as though you were always, the way you have always done it. He said, you fast for strife and debate and to smite with a fist, fist of wickedness. That's not what I want. You shouldn't fast like you do this day. You're not going to if you're going to make your voice be heard on high. Is this the fast I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul, to bow down his head like a bulrush, to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Is this what you think I want, God says? This is the fast I have chosen. To loose the bands of wickedness. To undo the heavy burdens. To let the oppressed go free, that you break every yoke. Now, I want you to understand something. One of the most fundamental concepts of the Sabbath that is so poorly understood by people is that the Sabbath broke the yoke. It broke the yoke of slavery. These were a people who, through all their life, had worked seven days a week from can until can't, from morning daylight until dark when they could no longer work, with no days off, seven days a week. And along comes modern-day people who want to look at the Sabbath day, and they, with, with such incredible lack of understanding of the history of this, say that the Sabbath is some kind of a yoke of bondage upon people. The Sabbath of all things, which is the day you lay the yoke down. It's the day you cast it off. It's the day you're free from labor. It's the day you can spend time with your family and sleep late and, and visit with your friends. This is the day you are liberated. And some people come along and say, this day is a yoke of bondage. You're tempted to say, what fools? Have they paid no attention at all to the history of this? Do they know nothing about the commandment? Do they know nothing about what God did it for? That it wasn't to bind people. It was to free people. Isn't it to deal your bread to the hungry? But you bring the, the poor that are cast out to your house, that when you see the naked, you cover him and hide not yourself from your own flesh. This uh, heavy New Testament overtones to it. 
Remember in Matthew 25 when Jesus separated the sheep from the goats and he said, enter the kingdom of my father, inherit the kingdom. Well done, because you have covered the naked, fed the hungry, and gave drink to the thirsty. He says, you do these things and your light will break forth as the morning. Your health shall spring forth speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your reward. You're going to, then you'll call and I'll answer. Then you'll cry and he'll say, I'm here. What do you have to do? He said, you take away from midst, the midst of you the yoke. Stop putting burdens on people. The putting forth of the finger. I presume what he means by this, the accusing finger. If you'll just stop accusing one another, if you'll stop putting yokes on one another, if you'll stop speaking vanity, if you'll draw out your soul to the hungry, if you'll satisfy the afflicted soul, what will happen? Then your light will rise in obscurity, your darkness will be like the noonday, and the Lord shall guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and make fat your bones. You'll be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, the waters never stop. Then they that be of you shall build the old waste places. They shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach and the restorer of paths to dwell in. Now, nearly everybody that, come, that studies this realizes we're looking ahead to the end time and the restoration of all things, the rebuilding of a world that's been torn apart. But listen to what he says. You shall be raised up generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach and the restorer of the paths to dwell in. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath and from doing your pleasure on my holy day and you call the Sabbath a delight, <laughs> yoke of bondage, give me a break. To call it a delight, the holy, that is separate of the Lord, honorable. And if you will honor him, not doing your own ways, not finding your own pleasure, not speaking your own words, you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I'll cause you to ride on the high places of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Now, these prophecies, in fact, the context of Isaiah all the way from just not very long after 40 all the way through toward the end, is very much aimed at the return of Christ, the establishment of the kingdom of God. And right in the middle of all this, you have this powerful section about the, the good works, the things that we're supposed to do. Now, I don't know if you've ever really focused on this on the Sabbath day, but one of the prime elements of the command to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy was that the people for whom you are responsible must not be required to work. Not only are you supposed to take the day off, that is the easiest thing in the world to do. I mean, I mentioned comment and talking to somebody recently about this, about the Sabbath commandments to rest. I know how to do that. I'm good at it. I have no problem with, with resting. But the problem, see, is economic. The problem is economic whenever you have a group of people that work for you, and it says you've got to let these people have the day off. You cannot require them to work on this day. Now, this is a matter of personal liberty in the modern world. If somebody wants to work, you can't keep them from it. But the fact of the matter is you must not require it of anybody. You break the yoke. You lay it off of people, and you set them free on the Sabbath day. And that's the theme that is being developed in these prophecies that Israel had, had actually violated not only their own. They were taking the day off maybe themselves, but they were demanding that their servants work. And they hadn't accomplished what they were supposed to accomplish on this. Now, there are many technical questions about Sabbath observance that rise out of this. That's not my point today. My point today is to tell you why I keep the Sabbath. 
And one of the reasons is, is that I make my way through the prophets, and I can see the prophets gazing off down into the future. And I can see that the Sabbath is a day for all men and for all people. I can see that the Sabbath day is something God set apart from creation. I can see the commandment to, to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it apart from other days. And I can, all the prophets looking down to the end time, see the Sabbath as a figure, as something that plays out in that. It's not some abstract theological thing. It's a very real requirement that you give human beings who get tired a day off. And they don't stop getting tired when the covenant changes. Do we understand that? That just because we have some religious argument that has changed, or we pass some, you know, Jesus Christ died on the stake, Human bodies still get tired. Human minds still get tired. There is still a need in human beings to, to have a time for rest and reflection and family and for God. None of that has changed. The Sabbath was made for man, not pre-Christian man. And it's a difference that, you know, is lost on a lot of people. But when I saw it, it came down on me like a load of bricks. The Sabbath also figures strongly in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Amos, but time won't permit me to go all those directions today. All this poses an enormous problem. It did for me in all the anti-Sabbatarian arguments, all the arguments that I was hearing and had heard about why the Sabbath need not be kept by Christians. It posed a huge problem to me. And it also has a lot to do with why the, reason, the, the reason why the arguments are so convoluted. However... The things that I've told you up to this point are not the strongest part of the case. The strongest part is yet to come. Matthew 12, the simple one chapter in the book of Matthew, poses a much bigger problem. Matthew chapter 12. And it was at this point that I really began to realize that I was going to have to you know, face up to this particular issue. Matthew chapter 12. Now, you have to think in going through this. I realize for some people that's an uncomfortable you know, activity, but it's what you've got to do when you read this chapter and you're trying to understand what we're driving at here. In chapter 12 of Matthew, verse 1, At that time Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and the disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat on the Sabbath day. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Behold, your disciples do that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day. Now, I'm going to stop right here for a moment just to clarify a couple of issues. One is that the law of God specifically permitted you, when you were going through somebody else's field or somebody else's orchard, to eat something of what was there if you wanted to do so. You couldn't carry it home with you. I mean, you couldn't go stealing from somebody else's orchard. That was forbidden. Couldn't fill your pockets with it. Couldn't carry along a bushel basket and fill it up and take it home. Not permitted. But as you walked through, you could pull a fig off a tree and eat it as you went on your way. You could grab a handful of grain, you know, rub it between your hands, pop it in your mouth and chew on it, and, you know, as you went along your way. This was permitted in the law. The Pharisees said this was not permitted on the Sabbath day. Why? Because it was work. Well, that's an interesting question, is it? What constitutes work? Almost by that definition, it's work to get your food from the plate to your mouth. You know, you stick the fork in it and pull it, you know, that's work. But... But their, their, their interpretation of this was that this is harvesting. If you can take one handful, why not two? If you can take two handfuls, why not three? And if, that's, if you can take three, why not a bushel? And so forth. So they said, let's draw the line. You can't pull anything off of it at all. Now, where is this written in the law of God? It's not there. There's absolutely nothing in the written law of this at all. Where did it come from? It came from the Jews' traditions. 
is what in modern day we tend to call the oral law. It was a term not known apparently at New Testament times. They rather referred to it as the tradition of the elders or the traditions of the fathers. This is something that they had rendered judgments on. The rabbis had argued about all this. And the consensus of the, of the Pharisees was one handful of grain was one handful too many. Well, Jesus didn't agree with that. He felt that the one handful of grain was no more, no bigger a deal than taking food to your mouth from off a plate that you had in your own household. If you had a basket of grain sitting in the corner of your own household, could you grab a handful of it and eat it? Answer would obviously. Yes, everybody would do that. So there's no substantive difference. This is an argument between rabbis about an application of divine laws. Be sure we understand what we're talking about here. It was not a question that Jesus, you know, was ignoring the law of God, mind you. It was the law of the Jews that was in question, not the Sabbath. But he said to them, haven't you read what David did when he was hungry and they that were with him? How he entered into the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat? neither for them that were with him, but only for the priest. Don't you realize what happened there? Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Well, now how can they do that? Well, the Sabbath day is the day in which you're not supposed to do any work. These guys picked a handful of grain off a stalk. In the temple on the Sabbath day, the priest would kill an animal, take his blood and sprinkle it in all the different places, cut the animal up into pieces, heave pieces of the animal up on the offering, definitely work, he, they did the butchering and the preparation, the flaying, the skinning of an animal on the Sabbath day, which is, I would imagine, hard work. Okay? So they profane the Sabbath in the temple, and they're blameless. I always thought this was interesting because uh, when you think about this, you know, laws can come into conflict, can't they? You know, you've got one law that says you've got to, every day, you've got to offer these sacrifices. You've got another law that says you're not to do any work on the Sabbath day. Now, which law prevails, the greater or the lesser? Which law trumps which? Most people would assume the Ten Commandments is the greatest law and it would trump any other law. Wrong. The actual service of God in the temple trumped the Sabbath day. It didn't abolish it. It's just that whenever the conflict came about, the priest in the temple, in order to worship God, in order to carry out the plan of God, display the plan of God in the temple, could actually break the Sabbath day to do so. Now, that runs so contrary to what most legalists would think, most people who approach the Bible with a legalistic bent, and this is what Jesus is driving at. Now, he then says, I say to you in this place, there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. He is saying, my disciples were not guilty of anything wrong in what they did. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. Now, I remember way, way back when. It's been so long I, I barely can remember it. But I remember distinctly coming across this passage of Scripture and thinking to myself, you know, something interesting here. Jesus is not abandoning the Sabbath. He's not dismissive of the Sabbath. He didn't say to these guys, you don't even know what you're talking about. The Sabbath is going to be done away with. It's not even important anymore. He actually confirmed the Sabbath in discussing what one could and could not do and, and discussing with rabbis. He validates the Sabbath. And then he comes around and says something really astonishing. If you want to know which day in the Bible is the Lord's day, you've got it right here in the words of Jesus. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath day. 
Now, if you can explain to me how on earth, when we get down to Revelation 1.10, and it says, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. How you can know that that's Sunday, I'm waiting to hear it. Because there is absolutely no way textually in the Bible you could come to any such conclusion. Now, we think that what he meant by that, I was carried in the Spirit into the day of the Lord, and it had to do with his vision. But even if it means the day of the week, I would have naturally presumed that day of the week was the weekly Sabbath, the seventh day Sabbath. Jesus observed the Sabbath day. That much is as clear as crystal to anybody. But he didn't observe it according to the tradition of the Jews. Jesus affirms the correct observance of the Sabbath through this entire section. This is the big problem for people who wear what would Jesus do bracelets. Jesus was a Sabbath keeper. I don't know how anyone could have any question about that. So you want to know what would Jesus do? Jesus kept Sabbath. And he kept the same day that the Jews observed at that time. They had no problems, no argument about that. Their argument was about what could you do on the Sabbath, not whether the Sabbath was in effect, not what, not, not what day of the week that it was. The Sabbath is absolutely affirmed. And here's a very important thing that many people don't understand. This argument always comes up with people. The seventh day, seven-day cycle has not been lost at any time since Jesus kept the Sabbath day on the same day the Jews kept it. It's been maintained intact for the last 2,000 years. Nobody has played with it. The argument that somehow the calendar was changed and we lost where the Sabbath was is a sophistry. We're going to nail that word down before we're through today. In Mark's account, Mark adds this. He says, Therefore the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Now my question when I came to all this, what am I supposed to do with all this? The Sabbath is in the Ten Commandments. Jesus observed the Sabbath. He never gave hint, one, that the Sabbath was to be abolished in any way, and, in, and all of Jesus' ministry is never there. Then you have this, this statement in Luke chapter 4. Jesus returned in the power of Spirit, Luke 4.14. He returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about there. And he taught in their synagogues. He was glorified of everyone. And as he came to Nazareth, and when he came to Nazareth, where he was brought up, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for it to read. It was just a part of Jesus' customary way of life. Jesus was a Sabbath keeper. Now, the Sabbath figures very strongly in the book of Acts. You read your way through it. I won't take the time to do that today. There are so many places where Paul habitually went to the synagogue. And every time he went to a new city, where did he go? Went to the synagogue. What time did he go? On the Sabbath day. There's not even a lot of question about that. Some make the argument in that in the, you know, the, 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 um, the Sabbath figure is strong in the book of Acts, but it's almost non-existent in the epistles of Paul. Some make the same argument in the New Testament they make for the period prior to Moses. See, it wasn't mentioned back there. It's not mentioned in Paul's epistles. Therefore, the church during that period of time was not keeping it. That's a what? It's a sophistry. The Sabbath day was not an issue in the New Testament church. Nobody even had a question about the Sabbath in the New Testament church. It did not become an issue until after the last apostle was dead. That's why nobody talks about it. They talk about the things in the New Testament that were problems for them at the time, and the Sabbath wasn't one of them. Nobody ever raised it. It did become a problem after the death of the last uh, apostle. Sam Bakayoki has told the story very well in his book, From Sabbath to Sunday. It's a very deep read. It's not, a, not the easiest read in the world, but it is absolutely comprehensive. I read it twice, read every footnote in it. 
And to me, it was one of the most eye-opening books I ever read. He tells the story of how it came about that the Sabbath became a controversy for the church, and it didn't happen until just after the end of the first century, when certain bishops of Rome, because of the problems they were having with being having fingers pointed at them and being called Jews, had to separate themselves from the Jews on the issue of the Sabbath day because of persecution. And from that time forward, the church moved away from the Sabbath day and didn't want to be associated with it in any way. If you haven't read Sam Bakayoki's book, I give it to you as a very strong recommendation. Then, and this was very important to me, was Hebrews chapter 4. Because in a sense, those people who say that the Sabbath is not mentioned in the New Testament are really quite wrong. It is. It's mentioned for one thing, and before I go to Hebrews, I will take you to, the, to Colossians 2. I do want to mention that in passing. Colossians chapter 2. Oddly enough, this passage is used by people to try to show that the Sabbath day was done away with. In chapter 2, verse 16, it says this, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of the holy day or the new moon or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come but the body of Christ. What they say by this is the holy days and the, uh, the new moons and Sabbath days and so forth were shadows and that all the shadows had been done away with. That is a great leap of logic that takes place in the middle of all this type of thing. I want you to stop for a moment and think about what he said. The translation should be, Let no man judge you, therefore, for eating or for drinking or in any matter part of a holy day or the new moon or the Sabbath days. It doesn't say don't keep them. It says don't let any man judge you for them. And among the things you're not supposed to be judged for is eating and drinking. So we're not talking about these things being done away with. If you read between the lines, if you just think about this passage for a moment, it tells you something very important. It tells you that the church in Colossae, a Gentile church, was keeping the Sabbath, the holy days, and even the new moons, by the way. I have no idea what they were doing other than a feast, because the new moons are neither a Sabbath nor a commanded assembly. But they were observing them, apparently. What was happening is that the ascetics were beginning to criticize them for feasting at these times. And he says, don't let people do that. That's not a really hard passage of Scripture. And right here is confirmation of a Gentile church long after everything was nailed to the church, observing the Sabbath day, the festivals, and even the new moons at this time. Now in Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, the old presumption that the Sabbath isn't mentioned suddenly goes in the tank. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore let us fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of us should seem to come short of it. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, in the Bible, in the, in the, in the, in the parlance that leads up to this, you come to understand that, that the entering into the promised land in Israel is a type of entering into the kingdom. So that the millennium, which is a passing over from this world's government and so forth into the kingdom of God, is also comparable to crossing the Jordan, entering into the promised land, and being able to enter into the rest. The millennium is the 7,000 years. You have 6,000 years of man's misgovernment. You have then a 7,000 years, which is called a rest. It's the rest of God, rest from sin, rest from war, a rest from all the, 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 the tragedies of the world that are around about us. So that the millennium, in that sense, is referred to as a rest. And this weekly Sabbath, after six days of work and one day of rest, once again is typologically, symbolically connected to history. That is, the time of man's history and then the time of the kingdom of God. So when he speaks of the rest in this regard and coming short of the rest of God, he's talking about the rest in a way as symbolic of the kingdom of God.
For unto us was the gospel preached just like it was to the Israelites. But the word didn't profit them because it wasn't mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we who have believed do enter into rest, as he said. As I have sworn in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. So the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Very awkward construction. Even though my plan was here from the foundation of the world, these people are not going in because they wouldn't trust me and wouldn't believe it. And this is, the, this is symbolized by the Israelites' refusal to go on into the land and, having to be, and being refused and dying in the wilderness and not being allowed to enter the land, which is comparable to the kingdom of God. For he spoke in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his labors. And in another place, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remains that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limits a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a hard time, today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. For if Joshua, and that's what this should read, had given them rest. In other words, if Joshua, in taking Israel across Jordan, had actually given them rest, if that was all this was about, then he would not have afterwards spoken of another day of rest. There remains, therefore, a sabbatismos to the people of God. Now, I put the Greek word in there instead of the word rest. Because every place in this passage that talks about rest, it's kataposin in the Greek, which means a pause from work. In this case, the, a, a transliteration of the Hebrew word Sabbath is brought over into this. Not just a Greek word, but a Hebrew word is deliberately brought into the Greek text to make the point and the connection between the seventh-day Sabbath and the rest of the kingdom of God. Now, what's interesting about this is that in the process of looking at this passage, which, by the way, builds upon a presumption of Sabbath observance of God's people and says there remains a Sabbath-keeping to the people of God. Sure, it's looking forward to the kingdom of God and so forth. But there's a convoluted line of reasoning that some people say this passage shows the ultimate Sabbath is yet ahead of us. Therefore, we don't have to pay any attention to the old Sabbath, which doesn't follow at all. It's turned to mean that we have rest in Christ now, people say. You know, we now have rest in Christ and out of this comes the phrase, Christ is our Sabbath, which I heard that so many times about four years ago in a, in a series of doctoral arguments on this that I was ready to start throwing things you know, out the window. I, it was so frustrating because nobody who was using the phrase when I said, what do you mean by that, could actually explain it. They waffled around something about Hebrews 4 and never got around to explain it. I had to figure out for myself what they meant, and that was that since we have now entered into our rest in Christ, which is not really quite what's said in Hebrews 4, that therefore the old Sabbath is really done away with. Actually, it's still another soft sophistry. It's also, and to put a phrase, to coin a phrase, it's soundbite theology. Soundbite theology is where you pick a cute little phrase, some neat little thing, like nailed to the cross, or, you know, like in this case, Christ is our Sabbath. And you don't have to really explain these things. They become icons to the people who use them. And so that whenever you're on your way to work on the Sabbath day, you can save your conscience by saying, Christ is my Sabbath. It's not a day. Never realizing that even though Christ is your rest, even though you have entered into rest in Christ, you're still going to have to work. You know, you're still going to have to work for a living day in, day out, which means you're going to need to rest one day in seven. Even in the kingdom of God, which is God's rest, people are going to work six days and rest the seventh it's sound by its theology. No one is absolutely sure what it means beyond the fact that I don't have to abstain from work 
or recreation. I don't have to endure the financial loss that might come about as a result of that. Now, in conclusion, I want you to turn back with me to the book of Isaiah again. Right to the very last chapter of the book of Isaiah, which kind of puts some of this stuff together for us. And one of the reasons, one of the, you know, this was really, I think, probably the place that was closure for me on why I keep the Sabbath day. Isaiah 66, verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, you that tremble at his word. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, said, Let the Lord be glorified. But he will appear to your joy, and they're going to be ashamed. A voice of a noise from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice of the Lord that renders recompense to his enemies. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Who has ever heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to be brought forth in one day? Shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she was delivered. God says, Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut up the womb, God says? Rejoice you with Jerusalem. I want to tell you something. There hasn't been a time since these words were written when you could really rejoice with Jerusalem. Never. She has been the subject of wars, fightings, captivity. She's been leveled to the ground and salted down. I mean, all these things that have happened to this city. And even when people have come back, there has been no peace. When Nehemiah was building the wall, it was in a time of war. And all during the period of time, from the time Nehemiah got the wall back up until the time that Christ came, and all the time until the Romans destroyed it again, the city was troubled, occupied, and beaten down. This is a future prophecy. This is looking for us to the kingdom of God, a time when God will, will return. He says, Rejoice with her, all you that mourn for her, that you may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations, that you may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. She will be so rich and so fulfilling. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. What an expression. Just a river of peace flowing. Jerusalem has never had it. Never had it. He says, and like a flowing stream, then shall you suck and you should be born on her sides like a little baby and dandled on her knees. It's peaceful. As one whom his mother comforts, so will I comfort you and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And when you see this, your heart will rejoice, your bones shall flourish like an herb, and the hand of the Lord shall be known toward his servants. And his indignation is going to be known toward his enemies. This is millennial. This is a kingdom of God thing we're reading here. For behold, the Lord will come with fire. And with his chariots and whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh. And the slain of the Lord shall be many in that day. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to connect this with the battle of Armageddon, does it, in the book of Revelation. They shall sanctify themselves. They shall purify themselves in the gardens behind one tree in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse. Those people will be consumed together. Do you realize what we're talking about? And all these people that think that, well, it's, you know, all those Old Testament dietary laws were done away with. Here we're talking about God coming, the return of Christ, in chariots with fire and a sword of vengeance. And he said, all those people who are purifying themselves in the garden, pagan ceremonies, who are eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together, saith the Lord. I know their works. I know their thoughts. It shall come to pass that I will gather nations and tongues, and they shall come, and they're going to see my glory. And I will set a sign among them. 
I will send those that escape of them to the nations, all the way off to all these people. And they're going to declare my glory among the Gentiles. In verse 20, they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord of all nations. They're going to bring them all back. He says in verse 21, I will take of them for priests and for Levites. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it will come to pass, this is the kicker, that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. And they'll go forth and they'll look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring to all flesh. You know, you can play all kinds of cute little you know, theological games and proof texts and throw all this stuff back and forth at people from time to time. But when I came to this scripture, after all the rest that I had read, it was as clear as crystal to me. The Sabbath was made at creation for man. It would continue to exist as long as man exists. And probably, in God's way, long after that. That's why I keep the Sabbath.